Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. <laughs> We are lucky to have five talented writers discussing the space in and around the slash that takes place between fiction and nonfiction. Skylight Books is particularly happy to have as participants some of our local fav our favorite local authors and supporters, including James Brown, Seth Greenland, Leslie Schwartz, Diana Wagman, and Megan Dom. Tonight, though, the discussion will be moderated by Megan. Uh, Megan Dom has written for numerous publications, including The New Yorker, Harper's, GQ, Vogue, Self, New York, Travel and Leisure, Black Book, Harper's Bazaar, The Village Voice, The New York Times Review, Book Review, and of course, The Los Angeles Times. Her books, though, include The Quality of Life Report, My Misspent Youth, and her most recent, Life Would Be Perfect If I Lived in That House. Please welcome Megan Dom. Thank you. Thanks for uh, coming out tonight. I, I'm so honored to be here in the company of these writers. And I have to give credit to uh, Leslie, first of all, for, for dreaming up this panel and, and, uh, and asking me to moderate it. I have to confess that when, I first, when you first mentioned a fiction versus memoir panel, I think you said versus. Did you say, maybe, maybe I just, I, I had this idea like maybe the, somehow the genres were, were at war in some way that, that, I, that, that needed to be addressed in an, in an urgent manner. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I, I'm not sure if that's true. I mean, there has, as you may or may not know, there's been some discussion uh, in literary circles and teaching circles and among people who, who care about such things um, uh, as to whether memoir is somehow overtaken, uh, certainly fiction, but maybe literature in general. There's a lot of talk of the, the novel is dead and people want to read nonfiction and they want to read first person narrative, you know, sort of confessional. Um, we're in this culture of, of uh, you know, sort of reality or something that's presented as reality kind of bombarding us all the time. So, so I think that there's a, a lot to discuss, but I'm not, um, I'm not entirely sure this is a fiction versus memoir. Um, a type of discussion, but who knows. Um, so I'll start by introducing our uh, panelists, and then I'm going to have each of us read um, just a very couple of short excerpts from our fiction and our memoir. We're all here because we've both written fiction and memoir, by the way. We're not just randomly here. Um, James Brown, on the end, is the author of several novels, including Lucky Town and the memoirs The Los Angeles Diaries and This River. He received a Nelson Algren Award in short fiction and a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship. His work has appeared in numerous publications, including GQ, the New York Times Magazine, and Los Angeles Magazine. He teaches at the MFA program at Cal State San Bernardino. 
Diana Wagman is the author of three novels and numerous short stories, essays, and reviews. Her second novel, Spontaneous, won the Penn West Award for Fiction. Her short stories have been published in Black Clock, Electric Literature, and elsewhere. She wrote the original screenplay for Delivering Milo, directed by Nick Castle and starring Bridget Fonda and Albert Finney. Uh, and she has a personal essay in this summer's Colorado Review and often writes opinion pieces for the Los Angeles Times. Seth Greenland is the author of the novels The Bones, Shining City, The Angry Buddhist, and The Angry Buddhist. He was one of the original bloggers on the Huffington Post. That is impressive. <laughs> many, so many have followed in your footsteps. So, so many. Um, and has written for the theater and for television. His play, Jungle Rot, was the recipient of the Kennedy Center American Express Fund for New American Plays. Uh, his television credits include a two-year stint as writer-producer on Big Love, and his work has also appeared in the LA Times, Newsday, Chicago Tribune, the Baltimore Sun, and other publications. Leslie Schwartz is the author of two novels, Jumping the Green, which won the James Jones Award for Best First Novel, and Angel's Crest, which was an LA Times bestseller, a book and 76 pick and was translated into 13 languages. That is really impressive. Um, she's the founder of the literary magazine Charlotte, a, po a journal of poetry, prose, and art. Her second novel, Angel's Crest, has been adapted for the screen and debuted at the Tribeca Film Festival in April. And she's now at work on her third book, a collection of personal essays and, and busy planning panels like this one. So. Um, I thought what we would do, just so um, you guys can get a sense of what we all do, and also maybe to sort of open the door um, into a conversation about uh, about the difference between narrative nonfiction and fiction, and if there's a sort of tonal difference or a way of of, um, of approaching the material, um, and how that kind of manifests for you. So um, may I ask each of you to read very, very short excerpts from your memoir and from fiction. And who would like to start? Sir? <laughs> Thank you. Can I take a, take a microphone? Okay, can you hear me okay? All right, I, I want to thank you first of all for showing up. This is really a nice crowd. I, um, this is a large crowd. Uh, so that's, that's a nice crowd, it's a large crowd. Um, I need to give this just a little context and I, and I don't want to read very much because I don't want to take up very much time. But you need to understand a little bit about my relationship with my mother, which, is, which I'll, I'll be reading about. My mother was um, in, in car, uh, arrested for arson and homicide when I was about five years old, six years old. Ended up uh, serving some time, and um, when she was released, she took uh, myself, my brother, and sister to Los Angeles to make us all movie stars. <laughs> and uh, my brother succeeded. However, he ended up taking his life at the age of 27. Um, he starred in a couple of movies, one Bad Company with Jeff Bridges, another called, with da uh, called Daisy Miller with Sybil Shepard. My sister also ended up taking her life as well. Um, we're all alcoholics and uh, drug abusers. But uh, the reason why I preface uh, um, 
uh, my reading with that is because I lost contact with my mother and she and I were never close and I don't think I spoke to her for oh gosh maybe 15 to 20 years prior to my uh, after my sister's suicide uh, after my brother's suicide then um, then her husband died or the uh, she remarried and her husband died and it fell on me as the only surviving son to uh, uh, look after her piece is called blood and duplicity Does somebody want to time me well actually I just want to ask is this the, this is the memoir just so we're clear yes okay the memoir this is the memoir yes. <laughs> the truth I'm not gonna this yes. is the truth <laughs> I'm not gonna time you no lies <laughs> um, Blood, blood and duplicity. She's already fallen twice. First breaking the left hip when she misses a step at the beauty parlor. Then her right in a tumble at her old house in Arizona. It's in this precarious condition that my mother comes back into my life. When her second husband dies and falls on me as her only surviving child to move her from Arizona to the Shannon Hills retirement community in San Bernardino where I can better attend to her needs. She is 82, I am 47. My mother and I have never been close. There are many reasons for this, but chief among them is my brother's suicide, the company guilt, and my need to blame, and in large part, I blamed her. For nearly 20 years, we rarely spoke. Now, for the first time in my adult life, I am forging something of a relationship with my mother. Both hips have been replaced, but it's the left one that troubles her. In the short while that she's been here, hardly a couple of months, I've taken her to the doctor three times. I'm taking her there again, today, for another cortisone shot. Hopefully it will relieve some of the pain and stiffness. When I come to pick her up, she's already waiting for me at the front door of her apartment. She has on one of her favorite dresses, a black and white ensemble, and her face is made up with lipstick and the heavy rouge that many older women like to wear. Surely she's been preparing for hours, as she might for a date. It makes me think, this mundane experience of visiting a doctor is by no means mundane to someone whose health is faltering, who lives alone and seldom gets out. I should also mention that she is wearing heels. Heels, I believe, that one day may be the death of her. Mom, I say, I wish you'd wear flats. I like my heels, she says. I've worn heels all my life. It's about pride. I understand this. It's about refusing to accept the rapidly narrowing boundaries of her life. And I respect this as well. But with two artificial hips, she doesn't so much walk as teeter. I trail closely behind her as we make our way along the path to the carports, ready to catch her if, if as she stumbles, afraid that each step might be her last. I recently traded in my old BMW for a truck, and because it rides higher than most cars, it is difficult for my mother to pull herself up and into the passenger seat. To make her life easier, I built a strong wooden box for her to use as a step. I get her from the bed of the truck, set her on the ground, and unlock the door. I turn around, and she is gone. I look down the path we just walked. She's not there. I look in the opposite direction. Nothing, no one. Then, out of sheer luck, I spot her just as she's turning the corner at the end of the carports. I call out to her. She doesn't hear me. Mom, I call out again, louder, as I begin to run. She's gone from sight now, heading where I have absolutely no idea. But I catch up with her a few seconds later. I'm out of breath. 
I touch her arm to get her attention. She turns, she looks at me, she studies my face. For a moment, she doesn't quite recognize me. Slowly, though, it dawns on her. Where'd you go, she says. I didn't go anywhere, I say. Don't leave me like that, ever, she says. So, James, can you just, just for the sake of contrast, can you read just like a paragraph or so of your fiction? Do you have it with you, anything with you? You didn't get my emails? This is, this is a sign of a good writer that doesn't read emails. <laughs> Everyone else responds instantly, you know? And, and uh, no, okay, well, it's your lucky day then, I guess. You don't have to read anymore. Thank you. Um, Diana, can you give us a little fiction and a little nonfiction? Um, I, uh, okay. Um, well, this is from a story that was in um, Electric Literature, and it's fiction. And I brought it because um, I did have cancer, and I, I did have cancer, and I needed to write because that's what I do, but I didn't want to write about it in the first person. So I'm going to read this first paragraph of this story, and you have to imagine I'm a 29-year-old guy. Okay, and the story is called Three-Legged Dog. My girlfriend is missing her left breast. She has a horizontal scar across half her chest, like the seam of a pocket that holds her heart. She had cancer before I met her. I don't mind. I once went with a girl who had multiple labia piercings, and that was more annoying. <laughs> this is kind of cool. A, the skin around the scar is darker than the rest of her, as if shadowed by a permanent cloud. A constellation of tattooed points circumnavigates the incision on her sternum, beneath her collarbone, under her arm, along her first rib. The radiologist put them there as guides. One night I took a marker and connected the dots. No hidden picture emerged, just an awkward box around the void. I liked the bare expanse of that half of her chest, an empty sky, an open question about what will happen next. All right, so there's the first, the first paragraph of that. And then um, I have an essay, a personal essay, that's coming out in the Colorado Review um, about going to visit my sister in Ohio, and um, I'm not going to let her read it. <laughs> so I'm not even going to tell her. I mean, who, who sees the Colorado Review, right? Um, it's called Mess. Everything is shiny at my sister's new house. Everything is clean and perfect, except me. I am visiting from across the country, and I am a mess. My nose is running, my eyes are dripping, I have a rash on my chest and stomach, and my back right molar is infected. I am oozing and snorting and flaking all over her new carpets and freshly painted walls. <laughs> Even the fold-out couch in the guest room is new, and I am drooling on her lumpy but not uncomfortable mattress and the new sheets to go with it. I suck on ice for my painful tooth and leave wet rings from my glass. I walk around with paper towels in my pockets and in my hands, wiping, wiping, trying to remove my presence. She doesn't seem to mind, but I am anxious. I am afraid to sit on the furniture I'm afraid I will leave stains on the plush-covered lazy boy or scratch the cordovan leather couch. I follow my sister outside in my socks to hear her strike her new wind chimes, and they are deep and sonorous, but re-entering the house, I track in dead leaves and sticks. I think they are dead leaves.
leaves and sticks. But when I bend over to pluck them from my dirty white socks, I see they are the legs and wings of grasshoppers. I am a mess and I have killed things. <laughs> This is a, uh, a piece of a memoir that actually appeared in uh, something called the Southern California Review, which I believe is read by fewer people than read the Colorado Review, <laughs> actually. Uh, the, I think I want to call it the banality of cancer, now after listening to what you said. There was a time in my life when I had to see a lot of doctors. I hate doctors, but I love doctor jokes. Here's my favorite. Guy goes into a doctor's office. The doctor examines him and says, I have bad news. You have cancer. And you also have Alzheimer's disease. And the guy says, at least I don't have cancer. <laughs> you told me that joke. <laughs> yeah, it's, I recycle. When I was in my 30s, I was diagnosed with stage four lymphoma. What was the prognosis? It had spread to my shoes. <laughs> You might reasonably wonder what this has to do with parenthood. We had a two-year-old and my wife Susan was pregnant with our second child, but she wanted a third, an insurance policy in case one of the first two joined an ashram or moved to France. <laughs> I was about to begin chemo and even if I had lived, the treatment might cause my sperm to lose its mojo. Here's another doctor joke. A guy walks into a doctor's office and the doctor says, you have to stop masturbating. And the guy says, why? And the doctor says, so I can examine you. <laughs> I, I, I love that joke. I just think that's, it's almost like a haiku. <laughs> you might also reasonably wonder what this has to do with parenthood. Not long after my diagnosis, my wife said, how do you feel about pleasuring yourself into a cup? What? I want us to go to a fertility clinic. Us? You know, you. So that, that was true, right? That was the true one. Unfortunately. That was the true one. Okay. Unfortunately, that the, was true. Okay, this is the lying one, This right? is This is the lying one, and I'll, I'll just read a paragraph. I dreamed I killed someone. Before you judge, let me repeat, it was a dream. Here is how it unfolded. The victim lay curled on the ground under warm blankets, peacefully asleep. Asleep, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. And I beat him brutally around the head with an aluminum baseball bat until whatever human spark that animated his existence was extinguished. To be precise, because precision is necessary when recounting something so personal and grotesque, that description was not entirely accurate. In the dream, no one was actually being killed. It was not a dream of action. The unspeakable had already occurred, and I was recalling it. I was dreaming a memory. Okay, so um, children, put uh, something in your ears because there's going to be a lot of fucking in this. Okay. <laughs> this is the true one. <clears throat> The lawn of fucking. I, I craved a gold penny of silence. Somewhere out there on the lawn, two students were copulating beneath my window. I was in the ninth day of a 10-day low residency MFA. It was 1.25 AM. Beside the trysting pair, two 40-ounce cans of PBR, one of which I could see in the dim lighting of the campus aquatic center, was tipped over. A pack of Marlboro Reds lay off to the side as if pushed away in a hurry for the greater pleasures of coupling. Later, the scent of cigarettes announced their post-coital smoke. They, would have ordered, they could have ordered a pizza, and no one would have been the wiser. 
that the embroiled were I knew both married did not seem to matter to either of them. I am no moralist, believe me. I was once them and could be again because I'm a drunk. Drunk is the name I choose to call myself because my God is a drunk, because recovering al alcoholic with its PC semantic hopefulness pushes me away from my condition, because drunk is what I do, it is in my blood, it is the story of me, my lifetime fable of collapse and remission, yearning and failure, triumph and perplexity. Yet there I wandered in my imaginary drunken cups out there because I am sick. I want to be under the window fucking someone else other than my husband, the window belonging to some other student, not me, someone prettier and smarter, and not a drunk, sleeping peacefully. There I was in that dream of drunk, skulking around with a married man, leaving behind the detritus of our sex, ignoring propriety and the privacy of others, because that is what we drunks do, even in graduate school, especially in graduate school. I called my husband. It was late. I'm coming home a day early, I said. Good. I'm glad. I'm afraid of this place. There's too much drinking going on, too many drugs, no meetings. I know. Come home. It's going to cost an extra $75, I said. It doesn't matter, he said, even though I'd been out of work for nearly seven months and we'd been living on his teacher's salary, a salary cut by furloughs and budget woes. There was a pause. I love you, I said. Me too. I felt the, that warmth, the safety of his voice. This was the man I would not cheat on. This was the man with whom I had a beautiful daughter, the man who loved me no matter what. How I had managed this union seems like one of the seven wonders of the world. That gift in a perfect box that never belonged to me, I opened grace. And here's the fake. Uh, the backstory is only this. You need to know that a suicide is a drink that's prepared uh, in a usually a mason jar or the pickle jar or whatever's empty with uh, equal amounts of whatever alcohol children can steal from their parents' alcohol cabinet. So the older sister uh, creates this suicide drink and she takes another sip. There's three sisters, Mary, Esther, and then uh, the narrator, who they call Baby Goldblum. So Esther, she takes another sip, then winking at Mary, she hands me the suicide. Mary protests, but Mary protests. Mary's protests are rarely heeded. She is one of us, so we don't deride her. Instead, we ignore her. It is our way of loving the anomaly. Go on, Baby Goldblum, have yourself some fun. I take a long sip like Esther did, and after I fall, swallow, I feel it rise up again almost instantly. I am able, out of a combination of horror and pride, to stave off vomiting. <laughs> Esther laughs loudly, but Mary's eyebrows furrow with concern. Go on, Esther says. She ruffles my hair, and under her encouragement, I take another sip. Maybe it is the lack of food, maybe because I am so skinny, but almost immediately, I feel dizzy and loose like my bones have become unhinged and my eyeballs unleashed into the aqueous fluid supporting them. 
Esther takes me in her arms and twirls me around. I see Mary out of the corner of my eye, and she has that look on her face. It is more than worry. It is an anxiety without borders. She does not like what she sees, but it seems to hinge on something deeper than the present course of events, as if something more meaningful is taking place other than getting me drunk. When Esther lets me go, I tell Mary, I love Esther more than anyone in the whole wide world. Esther takes me aside and says, I wouldn't do that, baby gold bloom, because someday I might disappoint you. I brush her off and turn up the stereo so I can dance more. I have a vast desire to remove my clothes, but when I begin to unbutton my pants, Mary tells me I had better keep them on. Esther, meanwhile, is changing into a dress. She is powdering her armpits and brushing her hair. She puts red lipstick on and tells us she is meeting Danny at the aqueduct. She then tells us that she and Danny Franconi just went to third base. I do not, of course, know what this means because I am only eight years old. She continues using baseball metaphors as a way of telling us how intimate she and Danny are. Mary, who is nine, holds her hands over my ears during one part of the story, and all I hear before throwing up is the folded corners of Esther's voice rushing past me as if, stra as if strapped to the sides of a speeding locomotive. I do not drink again after that for 21 years, and that lapse in fortitude is only because Esther has indeed disappointed me by getting herself dead. One thing, it says withdrawn. This comes from Naperville, Illinois, where I am banned at the library. This book is banned? At the Naperville. Why, why? why is that? Uh, sexual conduct and um, drunkenness and I don't know why. It's funny because I my, my column runs in the Chicago Tribune also and I get a lot of angry mail from Naperville or Naperville, <laughs> Illinois, whatever it is. So, hmm, hmm. Oh, really? Really? Okay. I, you know what? This is we're not discussing religion here. We're already we've that's I'm not going to get into that. Okay. So the idea is that um, I'm a <clears throat> the idea is I'm a, I'm a panelist as well as the moderator. So bear with me we'll cut one two more minutes um, I'm going to uh, read a couple of I'm going to read an excerpt from my memoir life would be perfect if I lived in that house which uh, came out last year and then I'm going to read a tiny bit from uh, my novel um, all you need to know about uh, the memoir is that it's um, it's a sort of um, chronicle of my life through real estate and um, a sort of ponderous uh, account of, of why we care so much about where we live. And this section has to do with um, what it's like to, to move away from a place that you've been and the actual pulling out, the actual driving out um, of that place. There are many dramas inherent to the relocation, to, to relocation via the highway. The tears triggered by a country song, the weird free fall of registering at a motel and not knowing your address, the exhilarating merger of open road and open future. But no one ever talks 
talks about those agonizing miles between your departure point and the point at which the interstate fades into a generic ribbon of asphalt. No one ever talks about the suspension of disbelief required to pull out of a driveway that is no longer yours, coast through a neighborhood that will soon no longer be home, and pass, if not for the last time ever, at least for the last time before they become symbols of nostalgia, the landmarks that, while utterly prosaic, have long been the only things standing between disorientation and sweet familiarity. No one ever talks about the importance of staring straight ahead while making this exit. You cannot turn your head and acknowledge the park, the museum, your favorite restaurant. Like breaking up with the lover, you need to be as gracious as possible, but even more so, you just need to walk out. You cannot play goodnight moon. You cannot bid farewell to the yellow house on the corner. You cannot duck inside the church and light a candle. You cannot stop and get coffee. You can only look straight ahead and drive. You can think about nothing but the next thing, the hello and not the goodbye, the up and the onward, and not the over and the out. Okay, so. Um, and this is uh, this is my novel, uh, the Quality of Life Report. That's about a television journalist named Lucinda Trout who uh, lives in New York, and she's this very like high-strung, cynical, um, elitist person. Very, you can, this is totally fiction, right? Because she's totally an asshole. This character, um, and she's she moves from New York to uh, this this little town in the in the Midwest called Prairie City, and uh, uh, one of the she, one of her observations has been this woman who this young woman who works as a cashier at the supermarket, the Hinky dinky supermarket and she's the, the woman you know compared to the other cashiers always looked very respectable and sort of like she might be going someplace so Lucinda um, has developed a sort of narrative around her and and she know she has noticed a few weeks ago that the cashier was pregnant and um, that disappointed her and now she has noticed that the uh, cashier has a engagement ring on was she 17, 18? Was it a testament to my elitism, my know-it-all sanctimony, my strident, arrogant, pseudo-liberal take on the world that I got upset? Or was I simply a run-of-the-mill busybody, a person so bored with her own catastrophes that she sought drama in everyone else's? I was not so much upset by Clara's new incarnation, but angry, not even angry at her circumstances. Who knows what they were? Maybe she wasn't so bright after all. Maybe she never even made the field hockey team, but angry at her. I watched her swipe the credit card through the machine, her manicured nails offset by the gaudiness of that ring. In my mind, a lecture poured forth, a supercilious, grotesque, utterly uncalled for sermon. Clara, you stupid, self-sabotaging idiot, you terrorist of your own future, you sloth, you victim, here you are, the classiest act in Hinky Dinky, the only one who bothers to tuck her shirt in and you fuck it up. You let him go all the way in the car. You forgo the condom. You forget the birth control, whatever it was. And what's more, you fuck up on top of the fuck up. You irreverse the reversible. You marry the guy. It's not so much that you got pregnant. Not so much that you're probably now going to have to get your GED when you could have gone to Prairie City State College. Not so much that you chose to keep the baby rather than put it up for adoption, but that you're wearing the guy's Walmart ring. That you're probably flipping through the bridal magazines during your break. That that priding yourself as you do on your strong work ethic, 
you're going to work right up till your due date and then probably, Lord knows, not come back for another year and a half, not come back until he's left you or been laid off from Firestone, not come back until you're sitting in the basement apartment in the slums of Prairie City watching the House and Garden Channel and thinking, well, at least at Hinky Dinky I was an employee slash owner. Well, at least my mom can watch the kid for me. Fuck you, Clara. That comes to 101.63, said Clara. Will that be cash or credit? Credit, I said. That was the entirety of our exchange. A kid with Down syndrome carried my bags to the car. I got in and started the ignition, where I heard Peter Frampton's Do You Feel Like We Do for the seventh time that week. <laughs> OK. So um, I. I, I'm, I'm sensing a theme, which is that um, a lot of this, not all, but often the fiction comes from uh, some sort of personal experience that we have, for whatever reason, elected to do as fiction uh, rather than as nonfiction. So maybe we could talk a little bit about how that decision gets made and, and why. Does anyone want to jump in? Uh, Seth, I'm going to, yes, please jump in. <laughs> Um, well, in this piece um, that I read, this very creepy fiction piece I read, as opposed to the cute and amusing cancer piece, um, <laughs> com comes from, you know, I, I think, uh, speaking just personally, you know, you get great material if you pay attention to your id and, and don't run away, you know, ashamed of all the horrible shit you think about. And uh, in, in this book, this, this is a character who, who actually, you know, isn't based on me personally, but it's... Uh, there, there are qualities that that this guy has. Who I'm, it's, I read a piece from a novel I'm actually writing right now, and uh, I find that if if I take my absolute worst qualities that I you know would never uh, acknowledge in a in a non fiction piece uh, and stitch them together, I can create a really compelling character. And that's, uh, I'm, so I, I guess, I, I, you, you know, if you have all this stuff rolling around in your head, for me personally, it's just easier to, uh, to, to engage with it fictionally because I don't think, I mean, I'm personally not interested in writing a memoir about, you know, how fucked up I am. You know, there, there are certain memoir topics that, you know, my, I might, you know, want to address at some point, although honestly, I have kind of concluded the genre isn't for me at this point, really, for, for a lot of different reasons that we can get into later. But uh, I find in, in, you know, the act of self-discovery that is all writing, for me, it's, uh, it's cleaner and healthier and more uh, aesthetically fulfilling to do fiction. I mean, what I was trying to do with this cancer memoir, and then I'll, you know, shut up and pass the mic along, was really to, to figure out, you know, this, this horrible thing that ha happened to me, you know, that nearly killed me, uh, came along and I thought, God, how can I make a buck off this? Can I... <laughs> can I get can something good, please God, come from the, the way this laid me out? Uh, and it's uh, and it was an interesting exercise to write. But the, the whole thing with cancer memoirs, also, you know, is if you're not Fran Drescher, nobody gives a fuck, really. Which is which I kind of learned the hard way a little bit because I thought, oh, memoirs are happening, and I've written a few novels, and I'll try a memoir. I had this horrible thing. Well, it's like, like I was joking with Diana. You know, it is kind of banal at this point, really, unless unless you come up with some really really original take on it. And and I think the same 
same with with booze memoirs because there are like a thousand of them now, and and I, it's it's the whole issue with memoir. I could go on all night. I really should pass the mic along, <laughs> but 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 so personally, I I just I like to you know I mean all all of us have things that we're we're trying to process, and I think it's why we become writers and artists. And for me personally, fiction is is a uh, a more efficient way to deal with it. Well, James, you have written fiction and nonfiction that deal with many of the same themes. I think that's fair to say. So what, w did you start off as a novelist and then, set, and then decided to sort of transfer the material into another genre? Or what was the order of operations? Um, well, well, let me back up for just one second. I want to thank Diana for having me out here. I really appreciate it. I, and I really enjoyed what you read. Yes. Leslie. I'm Leslie. Yeah. I'm sorry. That even makes it worse. Huh? <laughs> I get that See, he's thinking, he's thinking he's always writing. He, you, don't no. get, you don't read your emails and you don't remember names. It's a sign of genius. No, it's it's, 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 it's <laughs> right. uh, probably the result of, uh, of my experiences with the... Uh, well, anyway, and I want to thank my editor. Uh, uh, yes, my booze memoirs. Um, I want to thank my editor, Dan Simantanka, too. He's here this evening. Um, to answer your question, I hone my skills as a novelist and a short story writer, and um, f uh, and I, and I was quite content writing my memoir, uh, writing my novels, and my short stories. Um, but at a certain point, I found that uh, at least for my own personal uh, situation, that in order to move forward. I needed to tell the truth as it occurred rather than as I might have imagined it. And uh, that's a much harder chore um, because you have to be you know, honest with yourself and you have to be able to deal with your, your flaws, your shortcomings. And uh, you can't hide. There's no place to hide. Um, with fiction, you can make it up. Um, but with memoir, um, unlike if you're not doing a Jim Fry or James Fry, then you need to uh, tell the truth as it occurred. Um, yeah, I tell my I tell my students uh, um, a, a story, and let me see if I can pull it off here real quick. Um, uh, it's a hot, balmy day, right? And um, I was in first grade, and I had a teacher, and she wore a yellow dress, and <clears throat> um, she had really nice legs. I was only six years old, but I liked looking at her legs. Um, and this was the last day of school, and I spent the majority of the time looking at her legs. And so what happened was is that the other students got a hold of, uh, they got report cards. And at the last day, I got an envelope. And, uh, and so um, I knew that I had failed first grade because of my teacher's legs. Um, <laughs> <right>? <laughs> <coughs> um, you know, I was, so I was sitting outside the school, and along comes this guy named, you know, Chris. And Chris was a, he was a state wrestling champ at 191 pounds, um, a California state wrestling champ. So he was the hero of the neighborhood, a big, important guy. And <clears throat> so I, tell, I asked my students, I said, now, what, what, where can I lie here in this memoir and, and still get by? Would you, would you be upset if I said that it really wasn't my teacher's legs that, that I was attracted to? Yes, you would be, right? Because that's part of the story. That's part of the fun part. Um, would you be upset if I said I didn't fail first grade? Yeah, I'd be lying. Would you be upset if I said the dress was um, uh, blue, uh, that it wasn't yellow, but it instead was blue? 
No. And would you be upset if I if it wasn't a hot balmy day and instead it was a cool one? No. Okay, those are some of the distinctions between fiction and nonfiction, where in reality, um, uh, you know, we can get away with memoir. In memoir, we need to be we need to be true to the emotional truth to the work, where in fiction, all of that is out the. There, there is no rules, regulations about what you can or can't be true about. It's all a fabrication. But do, I mean, is there something? Do you, do you, you Diana, or, and and also you guys chime in? Is is there something that you feel is inherently limiting about the form of memoir? Because it's not only can you not hide. I always feel like it's a process of leaving things out. Um, you know, fiction can be the sort of maximalist experience, and and memoir is just it's like oh I can't I don't want to say this and that's not relevant. Is, is that something that you've encountered? Well, it, for me, it is the um, it's the truth that gets me in memoir. It's like it, if it didn't happen that way, then I can't write about it. And that may not be the story that I want to tell. Or the, I think, for me, the purpose of writing is to get to an emotional truth. Um, and, you know, whichever is the best way to do that. But um, in fiction, all things point to that truth. In fiction, it would be important that her dress was blue and that it was a hot day because all those things would point to the kind of story I'm trying to tell. And in truth, it may be that it was a yellow dress, which isn't as good for the story, um, but it's a yellow dress, so I would feel limited by that. I would feel like I had to stick with it. I'm working on a book now, a novel, I think it's a novel, and my agent wants me to make it a memoir because it's based on a true event that happened to me, a big true event. And she keeps saying, you know, make it memoir, make it memoir. And I, I keep trying and keep throwing it away because I can't get deep enough in memoir. I can't go to those scary places in memoir that I wasn't in in the event. In the event, I was trying to survive. I was trying to stay alive. And in, so if I wrote it as a memoir, I would have to be in that head and just be trying to stay alive. But as a novel, I feel like I can get so much deeper for that character. And, um, I, you know, that's probably my limitation as a writer, but that's the way I feel. Well, Leslie, you ha you were primarily a, a fiction writer, and the, and your latest proj project is a is a memoir or a series of personal essays. Can you talk a little bit about how that's worked for you? Um, yeah, I I think. Um, uh, so much that I've heard tonight is that my mind feels jumbled because there's this idea of the drunk memoir and the cancer memoir and then fiction. And But to me, it's just writing. And truth is truth. And I think that in memoir, we are, or nonfiction, journalistic, literary journalism, whatever, we are confined in some ways right, to being factually true. But we still, the facts aren't the thing. What matters is the truth. And I have found that in my fiction, 
which is thinly disguised autobiography anyway. Um, there's always a right, but but I, I don't care anymore because I've started writing memoir, and it doesn't to me. It do, the distinctions don't matter. Here's my this is my test. Am I intrigued by the writing? Does the writing pull me in? I've written uh, I've read uh, like Joanne Beard, Boys of My of, of My Youth. It's a beautiful series of essays, memoir that reads just like fiction, and. I don't know how true it is, or how factual it is, but I do know that there's some truth with the capital T in it. So to me, it's not about the genre. And I actually think I didn't say fiction versus nonfiction. I think what, I'm, I, was, what I wanted to talk about was, why are we even arguing about genre? Because what's interesting to me as a writer and a reader is how good is the story? How great is the story, and how can we tell our story? Now, I know that in memoir and literary journalism, we do have some, we can't cross certain boundaries. We can't. We, ha we are limited by the facts in some way. But, you know, geez, I think we can really write fictionally in, in nonfiction, and we can write non-fictionally in fiction. I just finished Franzen's Freedom, and that was like, there was so much non-fiction going on in there in terms of its tone to me, and he crossed so many boundaries that for me it's not what genre, but how well can you as a writer explore the genre you want to be writing in? Well, I, I just, I want to get at a sort of, maybe this is just literally a craft issue. How do you guys handle it when you're writing along, you're writing a memoir, first person nonfiction, and, and you get to where you have to explain something that happened that's so complicated and convoluted and it doesn't seem necessary and you can't actually get to the truth that you're actually interested in without backing up and, well, you got to understand about this, about my father, he was this way and the reason he was this way. Like, what do you do? You, you don't explain. You just, it's just, it's the same thing as writing fiction. It, you, it, the scene tells the story. I think somebody, I, I think a reader might just be like, whoa, wait, how did that happen? You, I mean, do you have somebody help me out? Uh, well, in the thing that I, in the essay that I read, the first paragraph of, the sister I went to visit is a half-sister from my mother and her first husband. And I have other sisters, three younger sisters, who have different parents than my older sister or than me. And I really struggled with that because a lot of the essay is about memory and my sister's memory of our childhood and the fact that we don't have the same childhood. You know, and I really struggled with how much of that to put in there. And um, I tried to explain it as clearly as possible in a sentence, you know, and get past it. But it was hard. I worked hard on that. On that sentence. Yeah. yeah. Well, how did you do it? I, I, I'm not, that's why I'm asking you. Somebody, do you have any thoughts on this? Um, not on this particular subject. Okay, well, I want to, I want to, no, I want to go back to something Leslie said about uh, breaking down uh, the barriers between the genres, because I, I think, frankly, that's really dangerous, because I feel like if, if we move as a society to a place where there are, we cannot mutually agree on what the facts are, 
I think the, the, the end of that road is a very dark place, I think, and that's, and that's a great concern. I think you see it played out politically, really, uh, and not, not to get into a political discussion, but, but if we can't mutually agree on, on science or it, and what's going on in the world, on what's, what's going no, on No, maybe here? use, maybe use yours. I don't know. Just, can, I just, can I just bellow? You can. Yeah, if, I think we're not supposed to cross. If, it. But if we if we can't agree on on what basic facts are, I think that has very worrisome implications. And I think this is, you know, in, in, having a literary discussion about it is interesting and very safe. But but the ramifications of it, I, I, to me, are are quite dire. But actually, now, but are you? I don't think that I was saying that we shouldn't be factual. I think that we have to be factual when we're writing nonfiction. We are obligated to be factual, but we, but, but we also there's a creative element to truth telling. What about what about J T. Leroy? Where do you come out with you? Now that's that was people said that was terrific storytelling. Were you okay with the way that was presented? Um, Does everyone know what this case is? Okay, good. No, yes, this was a. I know. See, I'm backing up. Yeah. Wait, you got yeah, it. You're not go gonna, this is not going to be interesting Let, to you at all if we don't back it. Never mind. This was a one of the made fake. I mean, f memoir that was fiction cases. I think Leroy is a very dangerous way to go. Uh -huh. I think James Fry or Frey is also very dangerous. But we also have to understand with with James Frey or Fry, however <laughs> you say, that that was Nan Talese who said, "Let's sell it as right." Yeah. Right. Well, so so, but but I, that's not what I'm talking. I think we have absolutely have an obligation to be factual when we're writing outside the genre of fiction, but that we can still use the literary tools available to us as novelists. Well, sure. Oh, of course. Of course. Of course. Yeah. Otherwise, it's, it's newspaper reporting. Right. Exactly. Uh, but, yeah. but, exactly. but, I mean, I want to get to this. You guys have, your agent is telling you to write something, Diana, as, as a memoir and not as a novel. And Seth, you felt compelled to do your cancer story as nonfiction for, for partially for marketing reasons. Well, is that, that was really kind of a joke. No, I, I know. I mean, what, what, not to trivialize it. I mean, that's a very legitimate reason. What, what, I, was, what I was trying to do in, <laughs> sorry, in, in the cancer memoir was, you know, I can, I can uh, you know, sometimes when I write, it's intentionally amusing. And I was trying to write something funny about having cancer and nearly dying. And I thought if I could bring that uh, that kind of point of view, then it, then it would be something original, and uh, it it was it was an interesting exercise actually, and maybe maybe it kept me from being as as deep as it could have been, and perhaps that was a, a flaw in the piece ultimately. Well, yeah. Let me just say one thing. Here's another thing that um, I was talking to someone about writing this novel of mine as a memoir and I said boy my agent really wants it as a memoir and she told me you know you can go ahead and go into other people's heads and you can go you know off on tangents and stuff and I said how could I do that and this friend said who is a memoirist said of course you can you can change their names you can um, combine characters you can, all you have to do is just say this is how I imagine it could have been or you know, label it somehow. This is the character. This is what I think he was thinking, and then you can go off into that whole. And to me, that was, that's like reality TV. You know, that's the camera right here watching the people eat bugs that are really not bugs or whatever. James. <laughs> um, boy, we could go on all night about these yeah. uh, d distinctions. Um, memory is fallible. Um, and memory is also non-sequential. Um, 
And of course, uh, when I write my memoirs, I can't remember a conversation that occurred 40 years ago. Um, so I can't be factual in that literal sense of the word. But what I can try and do is remember, and here's to see if I can get this out properly, is try and remember the, the visceral details in such a way that I can recreate them so that you can feel what I felt at the time that I experienced it. So in that regard, I sometimes will use fictional techniques. And that's where I brought that red dress versus the yellow dress. And, and I agree with Diana. I got to get this right. Diana and Leslie. Um, that, uh, um, that of course, the, the, the dress could mean something. You know, the color might mean something in one genre as opposed to another genre. But I was talking about the gray areas of where we could fib, basically, and not really affect uh, the truth of the work. I don't know who said it. I think several writers must have said it. But uh, the, the uh, fiction writing is the art of lying to get to the truth. So I think we get to the truth just as clearly through fiction as we get to the memoir. And I need to retract what I said about a complete fabrication in memoir, I mean, in fiction, because I think that memoir uh, fiction is not necessarily, as, as um, Leslie was pointing out, um, <laughs> right? She's the one who invited me here. Um, uh, as, Leslie, uh, as Leslie was pointing out, um, what was Leslie pointing out again? What, where was I going with that? About the fabrication issue. Um, uh, uh, well, I forgot what I forgot what my point is. But the point is, is that um, there are clear distinctions between the uh, as. Your name is Seth. Seth. I gotta get all these names right. I'm sorry. This is because of years of alcohol and drug abuse. All right. I have no memory left. That's, uh, Seth was making a good point too about the distinctions between the novel and the um, a memoir. Um, so there's really some good points being made here. Well, so why don't we open it up to the audience? Um, if anybody has questions for any of all. Of them? You never finish your point about the balance between scene and summary without slowing down the story. I'm still trying to figure it out. I mean, this is this is a technical problem, and and um, I, it's something that that comes up. I mean, you know, there was this piece um, by by Laurie Moore in the New York Review of Books a few months ago. It was actually a review of three memoirs, and the the subtext of it was sort of uh, depending on how you read it. Um, that that if, if there's really interesting material to best serve it, it's better done with fiction because you're not limited by having to back up and explain and all the facts and you know the way she put it real life is messy and sometimes gracelessly crowds out an enduring story and yeah it's it's hard i mean i i think i try to do what diana does if you, if you can say it in one sentence if you can really try to sum it up i mean that's just chops that's just try, you know trying to do that over and over and and eventually um, you know you can do it in one day as opposed to one week <laughs> you can write one sentence in one day. Um, so yeah, I don't really. I think it's just a. It's an ongoing challenge. Yes. Um, it's hard to pick which question to ask. It's a great panel. I just, uh, and I wanted to ask my wife a question, but I'm going to ask my friend Seth a question instead. Seth, <laughs> um, does like 19 questions to ask. It's really juicy. So just so, narrow it down. That's a wife talking. <laughs> yeah. You're a deadly joke teller to me. I've known you for a while, okay? 
Um, when you were writing your cancer memoir, mm -hmm. which I guess there's a shelf of those now too, uh, yeah. did you find yourself stopping and saying, this isn't going to be good in a storyteller sense? Did you stop yourself from in including material that you knew wouldn't deliver on a story level? Take the mic. Oh, yeah. Do you, do you mean, did I throw stuff out because it was like too funny for the moment, that kind of thing? No, that it wasn't. Oh, did you, it wasn't going to get to the story part of what it is. No, I mean, it was a concentrated enough thing and it had occurred, you know, the, the event itself was within the course of a year and I used that as an organizing principle and I was able to use, uh, I was able to use a lot of, a lot of material and uh, it, it was, it, it's, it's a funny piece to talk about because mo I mean sections of it were published but most of it is in my drawer so uh, you know that, that's a whole other conversation really that and not a question that you asked yeah <laughs> but no I, I, I was able I was able to include I mean all, all the really bad stuff I wanted to write about all the really bad stuff and try to take a you know approach it from a you know an oblique angle and try to figure out how I could be funny about winding up in the ICU you know and, and that was the challenge and there was so no I, I mean I it was like was there enough bad stuff to make a, a compelling story that was that was my problem could I squeeze enough horribleness out of it Really, it wasn't like I had to throw stuff out. Luckily, yes. Um, it was just as you guys were talking, it was occurring to me that just the rise of memoir and um, first-person nonfiction is really kind of corresponded with the rise of people or just openness of society about people being in therapy. And I wonder if um, I'm just wondering for you guys, if you're since you've all written both, have you found it more difficult in some ways to write memoir because you're really facing like you've got the one challenge when you're writing nonfiction where you're trying to frame the truth in the right way to tell a good story, but on when you're writing fiction, you're just creating an entire universe from sort of scratch. But I'm just sort of wondering about whether you found the experience of writing a nonfiction, especially those of you that really tackled fiction first, to be really challenging in a different sort of way. Perfect correspondent with maybe your therapy or lack of. <laughs> well, I won't answer that part, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, I, you know, seriously, I'm just after craft, and um, I just, um, I found that I went into this MFA program after wanting to do it for something like 25 years, and I, and I did it just because it, it, it was the right time. I couldn't do it. So I decided, since I'd already published two novels, unschooled, untaught, that I would try nonfiction. What I found with writing memoir is that it opened my a creative door to my fiction. That really, truly, I am a fiction writer. That I know that about myself to be true. But it taught me that there are so many entry points into writing fiction that I never knew existed. Because nonfiction is in some ways so, so different, but also as a writer, all I really care about is can I capture the reader's attention? How, what's the language that I use? Everything that I read in this short little piece is true. But I was really looking for language. How do I put words together that make it sound beautiful? So, um, I don't know about therapy or Zoloft or anything or any of that stuff, but I can say that one genre opened for me the doors of 
a genre I thought I knew, which was fiction, and broaden my idea about what I can do in fiction. But fiction has also taught me that memoir can be creative as well. Does anyone else want to address that? I mean, I think there's a real baggage that goes into writing a memoir because, you know, you're going to be hit with the accusations. It's solipsistic. It's narcissistic. And they're totally warranted. It is. It is all those things. So how do you transcend that? How do you make it something that is not just you? Well, Aldous Huxley said um, in the preface to his essays, um, he said that nonfiction should be three things. It should be the concrete it should be the personal, and it should be the universal. And I'm sort of paraphrasing there, and I think that's true of all good writing, but I think, you know, the Neil Gansinger um, piece that got so much bad press from people, actually what he was saying was a memoir has to do those things as well. The concrete, where it happens, the personal, who it happens to, the person, the effect, and then somehow, and this is the problem for me with so much memoir, is that it doesn't take that next step. It doesn't transcend to the universal so that it's not, I, you know, maybe I've never been an alcoholic, but I understand obsession and I can, you know, you can read something for that. Um, I think it's sort of the difference between Room, that novel by Emma Donahue, and the J.C. Dugard story. Even though she took the germ for her novel from the true story that happened to that horrible little girl who was abducted 11 years old or whatever and had those two kids in the backyard, but she transcended it so that we could read about it and it's not just a prurient interest. It's not just, ooh, was she raped at 11? I want to read about that. It's that, oh, what did this do to this person? And it transcended, not that a memoir couldn't do that. The best ones do. But I think that's, that's the dilemma. That's where it gets solipsistic and egotistical is when it's just, this happened to me and you have to listen to me. And not when it transcends as it does in Jim's work. Yes. Um, Diana, you touched on something that um, kind of made me curious about uh, whether you, you. Uh, pause to think about where your story ends and those that are in your life begin. Mm -hmm. is, is there a pause there or is everything fair game? Everything's fair game. That's why I just don't give it to my sister to read, you know, or my family, or my husband. <laughs> no, everything's fair game, I think. It's all material. Todd's right there, oh. by the way. Do I die? I was kidding, honey. Yeah, right. <laughs> just keep writing, buddy. <laughs> Any other questions? Any other thoughts, guys? F final thoughts? Did we get something out of this? Well, one thing that, that nobody, nobody said, which is I think memoir is way harder to write than fiction. Because, because which, and it's why there are so few really great ones, because life is remarkably artless. And to take something that's happened to your artless life and turn it into a work of art is, the degree of difficulty there is, is extraordinarily high. And I, I take my hat off to people who can do that. It's, it's just something that, it's, it's a real challenge. And it's fascinating to me that so many people think they can, actually. And yet, how many great ones have been written? It's, it's, I think it's 
it's close to impossible to write a great memoir for that reason. Whereas uh, it, writing writing strong fiction is something that uh, you know one can one can do slightly. Not that that's easy, but it's a little bit easier than writing a terrific memoir. I think. I have a, a comment. I'm thinking like maybe the experience of reading nonfiction and the experience of reading fiction affects the reader in a different way in that when we read a piece of nonfiction and we know that it's real, you know, we care more about James Fry because we can look at the back of the book and see his face and go, holy crap, it happened to him, you know? Mm -hmm. And like we know that's a real thing. It's, it's when we find out that it's not real in an experience like that, maybe we don't care as much. But on the same on the other hand, with reading the experience of reading fiction, like really stellar fiction can be transporting in a way as well. But maybe it's just a different way. You know, maybe it's a different kind of emotional connection we get between the two of them. I, I think that there's a there's we're in a culture that wants to sort of believe that that we are into on intimate terms with people that we don't know at all. So you know, the reading a memoir is the is the absolute distillation of that experience. So it's no wonder that your agent is is wanting you to do a memoir instead of a novel, and and that you know we we've all sort of had these had these uh, dilemmas and these and these challenges. So anyway, thank you all so much. Thank you. You're welcome. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.